Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Legacy of Blood from 1971 directed by Carl Monson and written by Monson and Eric Norden. But the version I watched wasn't from 1971. It was a Shout Factory release of the version hosted by Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, on her April 10th, 1982 episode of her series Movie Macabre. And that means we get to talk a little bit about Elvira, who's having something of a late career renaissance right now, and her contributions to the world of horror. For those of you who haven't heard of her, Elvira was a horror host in the early to mid-80s, and for those of you who haven't heard of a horror host, there was a documentary in 2006 called American Scary that did a better job than I could of explaining it. But the capsule version of it is that in the 1950s, when studios began selling their films to television stations for broadcast, they adopted the practice of bundling their movies together, So instead of getting a single film, you'd buy a package of 100, 150 that included a few classics that everyone wanted and a bunch of dogs that nobody would ever pay money for on their own. In the judgment of the people at the studio, of course. As always, your feelings about a particular movie are always valid. In order to persuade people to watch these low-budget, frequently amateurish productions, television stations would hire someone to present the films, usually someone either knowledgeable about the production history, who could shed light on how the films wound up the way they did, or someone who would encourage the audience to laugh along with them at the sillier parts of the scary movie. Myla Nurmi, aka Vampira, was the first of these hosts, But many uh, regional markets had their own particular favorites, and some, like Bill Chili Billy Cardill, who were more popular than the network programming. Pittsburgh didn't start airing Saturday Night Live until Cardill retired. By the way, if that name sounds familiar, yes, he did make a cameo appearance in the 1968 movie Night of the Living Dead. That was a nod by Romero to his favorite horror host. The Twin Cities, by the way, had Horror Incorporated, which only rarely featured a host, but which did have an iconic opening monologue delivered by Jim Wise that you can still find on YouTube. It was only when prepping for this episode that I realized that I was imitating him in my opening credits. In the 80s, Nurmi was consulted for a revival of her Vampira character, but when negotiations fell through, Comedian Cassandra Peterson was asked instead to portray a very similar host with the name of Elvira. Setting aside, you know, Cassandra Peterson's performance, that that is kind of a dodgy move, to be honest, although uh, Nermi definitely took her outrage too far, becoming a vexatious litigant, and, at least according to Peterson herself, hiring people to heckle her at personal appearances. It's a long-tangled and very sad issue, to be honest. The the source for that is Peterson's Memoirs, by the way, which came out in 2021, and they are an absolutely gripping read that I encourage everyone to pick up. You will not regret it. Uh, But to reduce it to the essentials, Peterson was a former Vegas showgirl who was encouraged by Elvis to leave Sin City behind and follow her dream of acting, and who did a stint with the Groundlings alongside Phil Hartman and Paul Rubens before finding her niche as Elvira. 
I feel like even though they couldn't be further apart in terms of tone, you can absolutely see the resemblance in the way that both Peterson and Rubens fully inhabit the characters of Elvira and Pee Wee Herman. Elvira's show was nationally syndicated in the mid-80s, and I remember seeing it on television myself as a kid. It hit right in that sweet spot of feeling just transgressive enough that I felt like I was getting away with something by watching horror movies late at night alongside a beautiful woman who made body jokes, while actually being corny and silly and utterly unscary in all the right ways. For this episode, she tackled the aforementioned Legacy of Blood, which was originally released as Blood Legacy, and also put out under the title of Will to Die. In that era, it was common to re-release poorly received movies under new titles, in the hopes of conning a second ticket out of someone who might not voluntarily rewatch them. Anyone who's tried to track down a movie from Italian cinema from that era will tell you that sometimes it's a matter of finding exactly which release title wound up being used as the title for the DVD. Uh, I remember trying to find The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue for several months before finding out that it was actually released on DVD under the title of Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. And that wasn't even its only title. It was also for some reason called Don't Open the Window. Getting back to Legacy of Blood, Monson, the director, made very few other films, and none that gained particular fame, although I have to admit, Please Don't Eat My Mother is the kind of title that they just don't give movies anymore. Well, screenwriter Norden had a similarly sparse film history, and in fact, they worked on many of the same movies. But John Carradine, who got top billing his family patriarch Christopher Dean, has more than enough credits to go around for everybody. He worked in 354 movies before his death in 1988, and even one afterward. His final film, Jacko, wasn't released until 1995. Now, a lot of them were low-budget exploitation pictures like Frankenstein Island, Satan's Cheerleaders, and the Astro Zombies, but he also worked with some of the legends of Hollywood's Golden Age in films like The Ten Commandments, The Grapes of Wrath, and Stagecoach. He's a bridge between two eras of cinematic history, and I'm sure we'll see him again before this podcast runs its course. If nothing else, he was in The Howling, which I know I'm going to do sooner or later. Gregory Dean, oldest child and effectively the leader of the household, is played by Jeff Morrow. Now, Morrow has a number of genre credits, but probably none more famous than his role as Exeter in the 1955 movie This Island Earth, which was famously riffed in Mystery Science Theater 3000 the movie, and which I can probably quote whole scenes from as a result. And then I ran my ovipositor down your throat and deposited my eggs in your stomach. But I'm not an alien. Rebellious younger son Johnny is played by Richard Dvalos, who is a regular television day player, as well as featuring in movies like Kelly's Heroes, Cool Hand Luke, and, um, Ninja Cheerleaders. Okay, look, you tell me you wouldn't watch that. Faith Damour, that's how IMDB says she pronounced it at least, lived an interesting life, being romanced by billionaire Howard Hughes as a teenager while starring in films like It Came From Beneath the Sea, The Atomic Man, and yes, This Island Earth as Ruth Adams. So this film is a This Island Earth reunion. I want to believe they were at least happy to hang out again together during shooting. And rounding out the family, Brooke Mills plays Leslie Dean, who didn't have a lot of other credits, but who did pop up in a couple of episodes in things like The Mod Squad and Mission Impossible in the 70s. 
Mary Anders plays Gregory's wife. She was a television regular in the 50s and 60s with credits on shows from 77 Sunset Strip to Perry Mason, and she was also in the extremely obscure cult thriller The Hypnotic Eye, where she actually worked with a hypnotist to perform while in trance. Well, John Smith, who plays Leslie's Svengali-like psychiatrist-slash-husband Carl, has a similar set of credits, albeit with more of an emphasis on westerns. It's hard to overstate how popular the western was in the 50s and 60s, for all that critics scream nowadays about Marvel pumping out four or five superhero movies a year, we got that many westerns a week in that era, to say nothing of entire nights of all-western programming on television. And the servants, Igor the butler, Elga the cook, and Frank the chauffeur, are played respectively by Buck Cartalian, Ivy Bethune, and John Russell. Cartalian, a bodybuilder, wrestler, and actor with a strong resemblance to Mel Brooks, was a featured player in movies from the original Planet of the Apes and Cool Hand Luke all the way up through The Rock with Sean Connery. He never had big parts, but he was always one of those famous faces, even if you probably did think it was a Mel Brooks cameo. Bethune had a similar career. Genre fans would probably recognize her best from Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, or possibly from her brief appearance in Back to the Future as the farmer's wife when Marty first materializes in the past and crashes into the barn. Incidentally, I just now noticed that they're the Peabodies. The kid is named Sherman. Sherman Peabody. Ha-ha, Spielberg. Very funny. And John Russell mostly did westerns, appearing in movies like Fort Massacre and The Outlaw Josie Wales, as well as TV shows like Lawman, where he did 156 episodes in the role of Marshal Dan Troop. Now, the episode opens, as always, with a dimly lit hallway in what appears to be a spooky old mansion. A door at the end of the hallway opens with a puff of mist to reveal Elvira, a woman with a bouffant hairdo and a low-cut black dress. The hairdo was obviously a wig. Uh, Peterson's actually a redhead in real life. She welcomes the audience inside, promising she doesn't bite. Many horror hosts hinted at being supernatural creatures themselves, from vampires to zombies to some other unspecified manner of monster, and the opening credits roll. Notably, Peterson is not credited in the beginning credits, only the end credits. This is credited to Elvira. The scene fades into Elvira on her trademark red velvet couch, delivering a little double entendre about how happy she is to have her viewers over and over and over. For a late-night movie, of course. Again, Peterson got her start as a Vegas showgirl, and there's a lot of the burlesque to her performance. It's not so much sexy as it is joking about sex, and there's a lot of corny ribaldry to her jokes. If you don't mind me sounding like a total nerd for a moment here. There's also a lot of corniness in general, which was a staple of the horror host's comedy arsenal. Most of them relied on bad puns, prop humor very much the kind of comedy that appealed to families, to kids and teens, and in an eye-rolling way to adults. It was meant to be entertainment for everybody. Uh, here, Elvira jokes that legacy is an Italian word, pointing to one thigh and saying, this is my legacy. It was an era when faintly ethnic humor was a little more acceptable, obviously. There's a bit more body humor in this scene. Despite her claims of knowing Italian, she's insulted to be called bilingual. 
Of course, that's a joke that takes on a whole new meaning in light of her memoirs, where she talks about being in a relationship with another woman for almost 20 years now. But it's not as though Elvira didn't already qualify as queer horror even at the time. She was doing camp, and while camp is one of those things that gets endlessly redefined and played with, it was originally intended as a love of the artificial and exaggerated. And although it wasn't necessarily intended as queer, the over-the-top performance of satirized vanilla heteronormativity became so thoroughly associated with queer spaces through the films of John Waters that in the end, camp and queer and drag all became inextricably linked. Elvira claimed in a 2021 interview that she sees herself very much as a drag performer. The only difference between me and RuPaul, she said, is that I don't have to talk. And then we get into the movie. Now, it opens with a stately mansion filmed at first in black and red that distorts its image before settling into a normal view of the grounds. We then cut to the interior, where lawyer Tom Drake, played by Norman Bartold, who went on to play similar roles in dozens of television shows across the 70s and 80s, he has a very familiar face. You'll recognize him immediately, and he always played this kind of staid, boring authority figure, accountants, tax attorneys, that kind of thing, is about to play the will of wealthy patriarch Christopher Dean for the assembled family. Wait, play? Of course, this has become something of a staple of modern movies, with a big name coming into the film just long enough to record a video will that establishes them as a character, even though they've died before the opening credits roll, and they always start the same way, if you're listening to this then I'm dead. But this has to be one of the earlier uses of the trope. In fact, it's so early that it's not even on video. It's instead being played on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder over flashbacks of the funeral. In the will, a bitter and spiteful Christopher Dean makes his contempt for his own family clear, calling his children, quote, dreadful scions wrought from my loins during four of my insane moments in my life. I'd make a joke about needing a lifetime of therapy to get over that, but that's literally what happens with one of the characters in the film, and setting up instructions for his inheritance that couldn't be more patently an invitation to murder. The servants each get a lifelong stipend for continuing to work at the estate, which, by the way, is also uh, Stately Wayne Manor from the 1968 Batman series. Well, the bulk of the family fortune, which is worth about $900 million in today's money, will be divided among the surviving family members after they spend one solid week in each other's company in the mansion itself. And if none of them survive, it gets split up among the servants. In other words, everyone in this movie has a direct financial incentive to kill each other. Now, this is fairly common practice for a movie like this. Many murder mysteries of this era centered around a rich family with plenty of dark family secrets being bumped off one by one, by someone who stands to inherit and or has a motivation for violence that they've cultivated for far too long. Usually there's a detective who's called in to investigate the first murder and finds themselves one step behind each of the subsequent killings right up until the denouement, but Legacy of Blood dispenses with all that and focuses hard on the decadent family history and the body count. After the lawyer assures Greg that the will is uncontestable, which is not actually true, video wills are never used, audio wills are never used, you need to be able to notarize it, this is purely an invention of fiction. 
he then leaves, putting uh, the family in the awkward position of having to deal with each other for a solid week. Almost instantly, we get a sense of lingering sexual tension between Veronica and Frank the chauffeur, a history between them that she was clearly hoping not to have to explore. Similarly, Johnny seems very interested in his sister Leslie's activities, although we don't find out why for quite some time. It's pretty obviously telegraphed, though. You've probably figured it out already, even if you haven't seen the movie. Speaking of Leslie, we cut to a conversation between her and Carl that makes it very clear that she's gotten dependent on her psychiatrist-slash-husband in a way that violates a number of professional boundaries, starting most obviously with the basic fact that he's her psychiatrist and her husband. She's clearly in love with him, and he both encourages that and withholds reciprocation just enough to make her needy and desperate for his affections, establishing an unequal power dynamic that makes her, again, very much dependent on him. Now, I got into this all the way back in The Brood, my very first episode, but there was a deep tension in the 70s between people who were finding therapy to be an incredibly useful tool and people who saw it as a kind of secular cult. And as always, when you have a deep social tension, it bleeds out in horror. Leslie's over-medicated, constantly sedated, and obsessed with whatever it was that happened between her and Johnny all those years ago. You know, whatever that might be. Down in the rec room, Johnny and Veronica play pool next to a tank of piranhas that certainly won't factor into the plot in any way, shape, or form. Veronica uses the opportunity to needle Johnny about his history with Leslie, and Johnny tries to needle her back about her relationship with their father, but it doesn't work because Veronica has no qualms about admitting that she hated her dad as much as he hated her, and she can't wait to waste the fortune he worked so hard to build. Johnny storms off just as Carl comes down, having put Leslie to bed with a handful of sleeping pills. Carl and Veronica then have an oddly hostile flirtation. It's not clear at first whether she's trying to seduce him to hurt her sister and he's doing his best to ignore it, or whether he's making a clumsy pass at her and she's responding with annoyance. It's does turn out to be the latter, but it's really not clear, and it's especially difficult to figure out what's going on when she asks him to diagnose her mental health issues, and he responds with, The hen cackles, and the rooster sprains his back. I have watched this movie countless times, both for this podcast and when it was riffed by Cinematic Titanic, and I have absolutely no fucking clue what that means. I even tried googling it, I just got tips about animal husbandry. But Veronica responds, well I know a good chiropractor, and walks away. I almost want to grab her and stop her and ask if she understands what he was talking about. It is a good cue for Elvira to step in and make a joke about chiropractors. She says she'd never make a crack about one, but she also admits she'd never want one to make a crack about her either. And to recap the plot for anyone coming in late, it's kind of tricky to recap because all that's really happened so far is the reading of the will, but she promises to everyone sticking around after the commercial break, uh, Elvira sketches were always either intros or outros from commercial, that things are bound to pick up. When she returns, we watch Greg shaving. I feel like that's a joke that writes itself. As it happens, though, his shaving is interrupted by his wife Laura, who's looking for their dog Chin, a little shih tzu from the look of him. 
Greg tries to make a joke out of the dog's disappearance. Moro plays him as heavily inebriated for most of the movie, and it seems like he and his wife are both supposed to be alcoholic. But when they hear the dog barking from out on the grounds, they go looking for it. Sadly, this is one of those movies that does need a trigger warning for animal death, as they find his corpse floating in the ornamental pond. I have no idea why. It is it is one killing that makes absolutely no sense, given what we find out at the end. The police are called out to investigate in the form of Sheriff Dan Garcia, played by Rodolfo Acosta, who more typically played villains in westerns of the era. He doesn't seem particularly comfortable in this role, stumbling more than once over his lines, but then again, they don't seem to have done more than one take for any scene. The sheriff is stalked almost immediately by someone with an axe as he looks around the grounds, but when he hears Leslie screaming inside, he takes off to find out what's going on. But it appears to be just random screaming, unrelated to anything, and he goes out back out to his car. They say she suffers from night terrors, but she seems to be awake and sitting upright in the living room, and that isn't how night terrors work as far as I know. The butler stops by to let the sheriff know he buried the dog, which is a creepy moment that serves mainly to let us know how suspicious and creepy the butler is. And the sheriff gets into his car, which doesn't start. Luckily, Frank, who appears to be an old friend of the sheriff's, is there to help him figure out what's going on with some handy metaphors about cars and women and treating them right. And the two of them exchange a moment of highly expository banter about Veronica and the romantic history they have together. Frank's reaction immediately hints that whatever their history was, it ended badly. And that's our cue for Elvira to step in, saying she's glad to hear someone say that you have to treat a car like a woman, because in her experience, it's usually been the other way around. This is, I'll admit, less funny after reading her memoirs. She is quite outspoken about the many sexual assaults she experienced during her career, both as a showgirl in Vegas and as an actor, and about her abusive marriage. I'm glad she seems to be in a much happier place now, but nobody deserves to be treated like that. Back in the movie, Greg and Laura decide to cheer themselves up with a slice of the foil-covered ham in the fridge, just as Frank gets Dan's car going. Veronica decides to go down to see Frank. Carl attempts to needle her about it, but Veronica is delightfully unapologetic about anything and everything she does. But before we can get to that conversation... We see Dan forced to stop for a car parked in the middle of the private road, and that mysterious person with the axe finally gets to him. And I'll say, all those horror fans who tell me that practical effects always work better than CGI because they're more real, they should be forced to watch this scene. It's patently clear that the axe never goes into the skull. It just repeatedly thumps against the poor actor's head while he pretends that the bright red tempura paint smeared all over his face is his own blood. Unwisely, the director decides to show the shot multiple times from multiple angles for what he presumes is added shock value. Now, I'll admit, the bright red fake blood is pretty standard for this era, they used it because color films were still relatively recent in the eyes of their audience, and bright vivid reds had a bigger visual impact than a dark wine red, especially over in the Italian giallo, which was really beginning to make its impact felt in 1971. But still, Tom Savini it ain't. Back at the house, it turns out that Veronica instead wandered down to the game room to throw darts. Carl turns up, and she needles him about his decision to keep Johnny and Leslie separate. 
It turns out that the two of them had sex back when they were younger, a revelation that feels unfortunately very telegraphed as well as revealed in the least dramatic way possible. And Carl says seeing Johnny would undo the progress Leslie has made in dealing with that. But Veronica sees through him, instead suggesting that he might be worried that she prefers Johnny to him. Which, ew? Carl insists that's not true at all. In fact, he's worried that Johnny blames her for seducing him, which drove a rift between them and their father, which we do see in a brief flashback that appears to be a diegetic hallucination on Johnny's part. It's not entirely clear, especially because all of the flashbacks are just played by the same actors at their current age against weird, surreal backdrops that make it look like they're tripping on acid now instead of remembering things that happened a long time ago. Still, given how much of this movie is static shots of two people talking, I'm not going to complain too hard when they try to do something visually interesting, even if the surrealism is more distracting and confusing than anything else. Carl and Veronica then decide to perform their own late-night fridge raid, but this time the foil covers not leftover ham, but the head of the sheriff. And yes, I see the joke too, but Acosta's performance was anything but hammy. Veronica's scream brings the servants running, and Igor covers the head back up, and hopefully doesn't put it back in the fridge. Realizing there's a murderer in their midst, and they've already taken out the local law enforcement, the group tries to telephone for help, but the phone lines are dead. Greg wants to send someone, but of course anyone who leaves the house is instantly disinherited. Johnny suggests sending Frank, the servants aren't bound by the same restrictions, they've got their perpetual stipend instead, but Frank comes in to tell everyone that the cars have been sabotaged, the distributors are all missing. Carl sends Frank and Igor to check all the windows and doors to make sure they're locked, and Greg takes Laura up to their room. Carl then leaves with Elga, presumably to give her instructions of her own, leaving Veronica and Johnny together. Johnny's just beginning to process the idea that one of them could be the murderer, a thought that's clearly already occurred to Veronica and one that upsets her greatly. She leaves, bumping into Frank on her way out for a little awkward conversation. I will say, I think one of the biggest problems with this movie is honestly that there aren't enough deep, dark secrets. There should be something nasty for everyone, but instead we get a lot of build-up to just two big reveals, and one of them is Veronica slept with the hired help as a young woman. Just about then, Elvira breaks in again to make a few jokes about the dead sheriff. Interestingly enough, some of them revolve around his costume. Peterson's mom ran a costuming business, and she talks quite a bit in her memoirs about how being able to transform herself through new outfits was the beginning of her interest in acting. Clearly, she watches movies with an eye for what the characters are wearing. And she warns everyone not to go raiding the fridge for head cheese during the ad breaks, which is just the kind of corny pun I fall for every time. Weirdly, she punctuates her acknowledgement to pay attention to the commercials with a shot of Igor the butler shrieking, You shall! And you will! which is from a scene in the film that we haven't seen yet. She's clearly decided that anyone watching movies with her can't care too much about spoilers. When we return to the film, Frank is pouring drinks for himself, Greg, and Carl. There's an oddly informal relationship between the family and the help for much of the film that I don't think is necessarily intentional. Possibly Norton and Monson hadn't spent much time around the wealthy and privileged, not that I can say the same myself, and didn't realize that there's usually an invisible barrier of class between employer and employee. They didn't think about how strange it was for the chauffeur to stand around drinking and making conversation with his bosses. 
especially this particular conversation where Carl asks Frank what he did before joining the household staff, and Frank reveals that he was a tank driver during World War II who killed a Nazi soldier and turned him into a lampshade. This is, of course, a slightly garbled version of one of the persistent myths about World War II that victims of the Nazi death camps were killed and turned into lampshades, or, in some versions, that their body fat was used to make soap. The few items of this kind of horrific memorabilia that do exist have all been proven fraudulent, though, and it appears that for the most part, the Nazis simply looted their victims and buried them in mass graves. Sadly, the lampshade myth is used today primarily by Holocaust deniers, who point to its debunking as a way of casting doubt on the entire well-documented and horribly methodical atrocity that was the concentration camp system. And that's a lot of invocation of one of the most gruesome war crimes in human history just to set up the chauffeur as a red herring. I might have skipped it myself. After Frank tells his story, he leaves, and Greg heads off with Laura, who is having a little trouble sleeping despite her sleeping pills, which she got from Carl, and who came looking for her husband and some reassurance. And then we get an odd, almost 30-second long shot of Carl standing in the room by himself, looking around for a while before grabbing the decanter and a couple of glasses. And I gotta tell you, you don't realize just how long 30 seconds is until you spend it watching an actor stand there and try to convey contemplation. Turns out he's going to Veronica's room to make another pass at her, but she shoots him down cold and closes the door. That is a lot of long, silent setup for absolutely no payoff. Johnny has another diegetic hallucination slash flashback, this one more surreal than before. He's remembering a time when Christopher Dean had Igor whipped to teach his older son a lesson, only for some reason Igor is dressed as a performing monkey and Leslie is there unspeaking as a sort of human doll? In any event, this is a reference to the probably ahistorical legend of whipping boys, children whose job it was to accept corporal punishment in the places of princes who could not, due to their station, be beaten by their social inferiors. Now, setting aside the fact that corporal punishment is wrong and the practice of whipping to uh, improve students' attentiveness and learning is wrong-headed and terrible, uh, there's no contemporary evidence for the practice, and in fact we know of at least one case where a tutor's diary mentions whipping a young King Edward VI. But it's nonetheless become an enduring metaphor for the privilege granted to royalty. These are people who do not have to suffer for their crimes, other people suffer for them. But as we find out from a conversation between Elga and Igor, he actually enjoyed the beatings, one of which is still fresh apparently and wants Elga to continue the practice now that Christopher is dead. When she tries to refuse, we get the You shall, and you will, line, which is a majestically over-the-top line delivery. I can just about replicate the vocal performance, but I don't think audio can capture the way that Cartalian tenses his very impressive muscles so hard that all the chords in his neck stand out. It sends Elga running out of the room, and I don't blame her. Seeing Igor whip the air, cackling wildly, would send me out of the room, too. Sitting with Greg in the den, Laura reveals that she didn't take the sleeping pills. She doesn't trust Carl to medicate her, which is probably a wise decision even if he's not the killer. They decide to go to bed for the third time. I promise I'm not skipping bits or recounting incorrectly. This is go to bed, I want a glass of water, go to bed... <laughs> 
no, we're going to, you know, have the conversation of the dead. Well, let's just go to bed then. And on their way to the room, they bump into Johnny, who's now fully giggling to himself and staring off into space. It's not clear why he's doing this. He has been drinking just like everybody else, but his emotional state is less I'm drunk and more I'm having vivid hallucinations of my family trauma. Now perhaps it's simply the effect of returning to the family home, but it is remarkably sudden and intense. As is his recovery. In the very next scene, he's playing pool with Frank down in the rec room, which is, again, very odd for someone wealthy and privileged to be doing with the hired help, but even more odd for someone who is just moments ago having hallucinations of the butler dressed as a monkey due to the stress of the recent murder in the area. And then they go get a ham sandwich from the fridge! A decision that seems even more strange under the circumstances. And Frank even makes Johnny cut it for him. Elvira pops in to make the inevitable ham joke, but I love her subsequent description of the movie as, quote, 14 subplots in search of a story, unquote. I try not to be mean to any of the films I talk about, because I do understand that nobody sets out to make a boring movie, and that everyone is limited by time, by budget, by the availability of actors who can execute their vision. There's so many obstacles to making a movie, and if even one part fails, the whole thing can look underwhelming as a result, and I don't want to dump on people who do really hard work. But that doesn't mean I have no snark in me, and hearing Elvira describe herself as a mistress in the dark when it comes to following the endless string of elliptical conversations filmed with no camera movement to add any visual interest, yeah, it did my black little heart some good, I confess. But thankfully, something does finally happen. When Greg and Laura get into bed at long last, it turns out that someone has rigged the switch on the bedside lamp to deliver a lethal dose of current, and both of them are instantly electrocuted. The household lights flicker, drawing the attention of the rest of the group, who somehow know where it's coming from, which seems a bit implausible. And even though Frank knocks the lamp out of Greg's convulsively gripping fingers, it's too late. They're dead. Frank and Igor both recognize that the killer has to be someone in the household in order to have access to the lamp. Carl has Lysely heavily sedated to prevent her from panicking. Everyone else trades accusations, with Frank coming in for particular scrutiny due to his electrical supplies in the garage, and it all ends with Carl attempting to strangle Johnny after he boasts about sleeping with Leslie. Nobody wants to leave, both because of the potential loss of their fortune and because suspicion would instantly fall on them as the only person unafraid of being murdered. The discussion breaks up inconclusively as everyone goes their separate ways, which is, by this point, something of a hallmark of the movie. As Elvira subsequently points out, popping back in to suggest that the family should maybe try Parcheesi or Charades as a break from all the bickering. She says that she still believes that there's a story in the film, dying to get out. Just like me, dying to get out. Ah, there's no substitute for the classics. Back in the movie, everyone sneaks around furtively for a bit while Johnny has another set of flashbacks slash hallucinations about his relationship with Leslie. Again, the timing of his mental breakdown appears to be entirely arbitrary and plot-driven, which is more than a little frustrating. Elga finds him, and they have a conversation about how the family became so toxic and full of hate, which would be more interesting if Elga could come up with something more than just, it happened slowly over the years. 
which was pretty much all she had. Veronica goes down to visit Frank, and we get a good look at the lampshade he made. And while I don't want to fault anybody's craft projects, it really does look like someone just took a regular lampshade and glued big, crusty, irregularly shaped pieces of leather to it. I understand why they did it this way. They wanted something that couldn't be mistaken for a regular leather lampshade, something that had a certain touch of the macabre about it, but it's so over the top that it just looks absurd. The two of them have another conversation, and again, I hate to harp on this movie's problems, but there are a lot of long, static shots of two people standing around talking about very similar topics in various personal combinations. She tries to bribe him into fixing the cars with sexual favors, but he's not lying. He genuinely doesn't have the ability to make them work again. She leaves, and again, the scene ends inconclusively. And Elvira has clearly had enough. Rather than comment on the plot any further in her next sketch, she does a little musical montage of random host segment moments from the series set to the show's theme before returning to the film again, where Leslie wakes up calling Johnny's name. This upsets Carl, but not nearly as much as finding out that she was dreaming about being trapped in a cold, dark cave only to be rescued by Johnny, and incidentally the way she keeps saying Johnny, Johnny, is so similar to the way Judith O'Day says it during her breakdown in Night of the Living Dead that I have to imagine that Brooke Mills saw the film and took notes. She wants to see Johnny, but Carl vetoes the suggestion and puts her back to bed. Honestly, of all the people in the movie, Brooke Mills has to have the most thankless role. I think she gets all of about five minutes outside the bedroom, and at least some of that is her murder. Um, spoilers. Carl leaves, and Johnny sneaks in to see her. It feels like this should be one of the biggest scenes in the movie, a pay-up to the longest-running emotional build-up we've had in the film to date, but in practice we've had so many long, static, conversational sequences about the family's painful history that this just sort of blends into the rest. Johnny asks her to leave the house with him and give up on the money in favor of living an emotionally healthy life, but she misinterprets it as a romantic gesture and tries to kiss him. Johnny literally flees the room screaming, and the axe-wielding killer finally catches up with him on the stairway to the rec room. Which is our cue for another digression from Elvira, where she talks about what it's like having to sit through movies like this week after week. I'm not sure which line I liked more. It isn't pretty being this easy. Or, nobody ever promised me a rose garden. They didn't promise me a cactus garden either, but they still managed to stick it to me. There's something wonderfully Phyllis Diller-esque about her rye delivery, and even though she doesn't talk much in her book about the comedians that influenced her, I wouldn't be surprised one bit if she wound up being a fan. Um, for those of you younger types who don't remember Diller, she was a legendary stand-up comedian who broke a lot of boundaries in the industry for women. She usually satirized the traditional stereotypes of the 50s housewife by suggesting that she was indifferent to domestic labor and cared very little about the state of her home. One of her very first sketches was a play on the usual shows that featured cooking and cleaning tips for women called Phyllis Diller, the Homely Friendmaker. You can see the resemblance to Elvira's humor. Back in the movie, Leslie goes looking for Johnny. She finds his body sticking out of the piranha tank and understandably freaks out. She flees into the grounds, pursued by Carl, who's finally gotten back to wherever he wandered off to. It's an awfully convenient and unmotivated disappearance for someone who's not the killer, while the fish munch on Johnny's corpse. 
it's the well-known dictum of Chekhov's fish, even though they didn't actually do the killing themselves. Someone shoots Leslie right between the eyes. Carl finds the body and the gun, and shortly afterwards Frank and Veronica find Carl. They assume he did it despite his protestations of innocence and tie him up in the cellar. Igor and Frank make plans to head out at first light to get the police, but Veronica cautions everyone that there's no conclusive proof that it wasn't one of the remaining members of the group instead, which doesn't go over well, not with the three people she basically accuses of multiple murder, or with the audience who's at this point having to watch another long, inconclusive conversation that's shot without anything to give it visual interest. At least this one has a kiss between Veronica and Frank. We cut from that conversation to another conversation, this one between Frank and Veronica about their future together. It's interrupted by a bee, which turns out to be an escapee from a whole collection of bees being dumped into Carl's impromptu prison. After a brief digression from Elvira, this one is unrelated to the movie, it's just her reading some fan mail, Frank and Veronica hear his screams and discover that the room is flooded with insects and they're stinging him to death. But instead of helping him, they just close the door to keep the bees inside. I mean, I don't like bees. I'm actually terrified of them, and I freely admit that. But I think if someone's life was at stake, I would probably risk a few stings. They spot the killer moments later and give chase. Finally cornering him in the wine cellar, Veronica and Frank discover that it's actually Christopher Dean, who faked his own death to get an opportunity to bring all his children together so he could kill them. He claims that they were all the product of his wife's affairs and that he never saw himself in any of them. And that revelation just sits there in silence for a moment, before a rack of wine barrels topples onto Frank, Veronica, and Christopher crushing them all right in the middle of one of the few truly unexpected dramatic revelations of the movie, which then goes totally unexplored. Because apparently Elga and Igor knew that the funeral was a ruse, and have just been waiting all this time for the Dean Patriarch to show himself so they could kill him and inherit the entire fortune. I have no idea how they think they won't be suspected, given that the only evidence that Christopher Dean did it is his admission to Frank and Veronica, both of whom are now dead, and also so is Christopher, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be hard to claim that he toppled a rack of wine barrels onto himself. But honestly, people have committed a lot of murders in real life in the unrealistic expectation that they won't get caught, so we'll let that slide. Over some milk and cookies, Igor reveals that his cousin works at the funeral home and let him know that they were burying an empty coffin. Elga, in turn, reveals that she poisoned the cookies and he has only moments to live. He expires and she looks dead into the camera like this is suddenly an episode of The Office and breaks the fourth wall to say, And I bet you thought it was the butler all the time, before winking at the audience. The screen freeze frames, and the credits roll over this odd mix of circus music and screams. And of all the times to go overtly comic and break the fourth wall, the last 30 seconds of an otherwise entirely serious drawing room mystery has to be the absolute strangest. It's an inexplicable decision that saps what little momentum the ending had developed while not being funny enough to justify the joke. Elvira is similarly unimpressed, calling the ending an insult to the audience's intelligence. That is, if you had any intelligence to be insulted. She signs off with her traditional line, Unpleasant Dreams, 
but adds the odd circus music over the credits instead of her usual theme. And frankly, I don't blame her. It is the strangest composition I think I've ever heard. And will I hang on to this movie? Probably not, to be honest. I've got a copy of the cinematic Titanic version, which has jokes throughout the entire film instead of just breaks for sketches. And as much as I do like Cassandra Peterson and Elvira, I don't see myself sitting through the whole movie just for her bits. That's what YouTube was made for. As much fun as it's been spending Halloween with my favorite horror host, I'll probably let this one go to someone else. And if you want to talk about Elvira, the other wonderful horror hosts we've gotten over the years, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. And again, if you want to see a movie in particular, you can check my watch list on Letterboxd to see whether or not it's one of the ones I plan to do for the show. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, well, Halloween is over, so it's back to our regularly scheduled bi-weekly programming. And you know what that means, everybody. Um, no, not the premature burial. Good thought, great idea, but I figured that since I just did Scream last time, I'd keep that train right on rolling by picking up with Williamson's attempt to make the first meta-horror sequel, 1997's Scream 2. See you then.